Find your place, if you will, at Psalm 139. Psalm 139. I've done some dumb things in my life. That was one of them. I want to say thank you to whoever turned in Psalm 139. And I just want to say thank you to everybody. We, we've had fun this summer, um, you know, looking at texts of Scripture that you wanted to hear. Uh, I've got more than we can get to. So please, if I didn't cover and don't cover by the end of September one of the Psalms that you wanted to hear, please be patient. We'll bring this back at some point and we'll give you an opportunity to turn some more in and uh, we will continue uh, doing this since it's uh, popular to do. But I'm not sure who turned in Psalm 139, but I'm so thankful that they did. I love uh, Psalm 139. I don't know that I'm going to finish tonight. That's why I say I hope to get to Psalm 103 next week. But there's some things I want to say that come out of this psalm that I hope that you know, I'll have clarity to say them here in just a few minutes uh, and that uh, you'll see how they uh, tie into this psalm. Uh, let's pray together as we begin. Father, thank you for the psalms. Thank you for these beautiful songs, these beautiful poems. Lord, I wish we had the, the music that went with them, the arrangements that went with them to be able to, to know how they sounded when they were originally sung, but I'm, I'm grateful that some of them have been put to song and are still being sung today and the others are still being studied. And I, I pray, Lord, that you'll open our heart then as we talk uh, together from Psalm 139. In your name I pray, amen. You know, there's something that uh, none of us likes that we all know is a reality, and that is when we think about big brother government, big brother watching us. None of us likes that. Uh, to think that the government's looking over our shoulder, big brother is spying on us, big brother is keeping up with everything we do, tracking everything, you know, where we go and what we buy, you know, that is sort of a creepy factor to that. Would you agree? sort of a creepy factor to that. But the reality is, just about everywhere you go today, you're on camera somewhere. Somebody is watching you. Somebody's looking at you. You know, you realize in the buildings on this side of the property over here, there's like 27 or 28 cameras that are at doorways and hallways and various other places, parking lots. 27 cameras that bring a high-definition picture to a central location where one person can sit and watch them all. And did you know that in this room, there's two cameras, you can't even see them, and they're looking at you in case somebody pulls out a gun to shoot me? Just let them. <laughs> but don't, no, don't let them. Uh, they're, you know, they're watching. It, if you drive on the turnpike, if you've been on the turnpike, Mary and I have been on the turnpike recently, and when you go through the toll booths, they have a camera facing you that gets your picture, if they need to, gets your picture of who's driving in the passenger seat, in the driver's seat, and a camera behind you that gets a pa the picture of the tag on the back of your car so they can identify your car and the person that's in the car. And all three of those toll booths that you go through, uh, you know, those cameras are available. If you go in a store, they're watching you everywhere you go. And who doesn't have a an Alexa, you might not, but who doesn't have an Alexa and they're listening to you? I mean, there's a creepy factor to that. And when we think about the government, you know, Big Brother watching us, and we think about all these cameras looking in on us and everybody listening to everything we're, you know, saying and doing, you know, there's a, there's a creepy factor to that. We don't, we don't like that. We don't want that. What we're about to read in Psalm 139 is going to tell you that God sees you 
Everywhere you go, all the time, God knows you, everything there is to know about you. And God is powerful over every circumstance of your life. He's with you and powerful over those circumstances. But the purpose of what he's going to tell us in Psalm 139 is not to create a creepy factor. It's to create a comfort factor. While we don't want big government looking over our shoulders, and we're not crazy about a lot of cameras watching us and videotaping us or you know, digitally recording us, uh, because you know, we, we like our anonymity, we like our privacy, we want God to be able to see us and to know us and to be with us in every circumstance of our life. Psalm 139 is going to tell us that that's the kind of God that we serve. And the purpose of telling us that was not to create some kind of a creepy factor. You know, God's looking over us like big brother's looking over us. But it was to create a comfort factor that we're never alone and that God is always with us and God is always there to help us. We don't know exactly when David wrote this psalm. It's attributed to David in the, in the title. It's attributed to David. I'm going to give you an idea of when it might have occurred, when we get a little later into this psalm. But this is one of those beautiful psalms that's going to accentuate three of the attributes of God. His omniscience, his omnipotence, and his omnipresence. His omniscience, his omnipotence, and his, omni, his omnipresence. And you're going to see these three attributes of God, that God is watching us, that, that God is with us, and that God is always powerful over whatever it is that we're dealing with or whatever it is that we face. And he opens the psalm with, uh, uh, with an indicative statement. He's simply making a statement of fact. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. He's not asking at this moment for the Lord to do that. He's saying, Lord, you've already done this. You have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thoughts afar off. So before we get into this psalm any further, let's stop for a moment. We're talking about God seeing you. We're talking about God being with you. We're talking about God knowing everything there is to know about you, which when it comes to the digital world is sort of creepy, but when it comes to God is very comforting. But I want you to notice something about this psalm as we go through it. David looks at this as the relationship that he has with God, and he's pleased with that relationship. Six times, David will use the name for God. You see it in all capital letters, L-O-R-D, Jehovah or Yahweh. Uh, he uses the name God, which is the name El or Eloah, which is uh, the, one of the names for God. Six times, he uses the word Lord or God. But here's what's fascinating. In... I'm not, don't hold me to this number because I counted again before I came over this evening and I got a different count than I got earlier. Um, but when you read through this psalm, I want you to notice the, the pronouns. Almost 40 times David talks about me and my and I. And nearly 30 times he talks about you and your. In other words, David's having a, a conversation with God in this psalm. This is going back and forth between he and God. And, and here's what that says to us. He is so comfortable with God knowing everything there is to know about him, being with him every moment of every day. 
understanding everything there is to understand about him. He's so comfortable with it that he goes on in this conversational style where he talks about this relationship that he has with God. I this and you that and I this and you that and me and, and you and is this kind of a relationship in the psalm. David isn't the least bit creeped out by the fact that God's watching over him. As a matter of fact, he says in verse 2, after he makes the statement that God has searched him and known him, he says, you know my sitting down and my rising up. You know all my actions and all of my movements. Think about that. Uh, did you take a nap this afternoon? The Lord knew it. Did you have trouble waking up? The, the Lord knew it. Uh, do, do you have trouble sleeping at night? Uh, the Lord knows it. I woke up this morning at 4.30. 4.30. Nothing good is happening at 4.30 in the morning. 4.30. Did you hear that number? The Lord knew it. The Lord knows everything. He knows when you're speeding. He knows when you're driving the speed limit. He knows when you ate too much, and he knows when you didn't eat enough. He knows everything about your rising and your sitting down. All of your movements, God knows. He knows when you're fidgety for the service to end. And he knows when you've drifted off in the middle of the service. He knows it all. That's not supposed to be creepy. That's supposed to be comforting. God knows all of this about us. It goes on. You understand my thought afar off. I mean, that's all that goes on in my mind. God knows. <laughs> Do you want everybody around you to know everything that goes on in your mind? No, you do not. But God knows everything that's going on in our minds, every thought that we have in our minds, the thoughts that are afar off. God knows those thoughts. God knows those thoughts. This is his omniscience. He's the all-knowing God. He says, verse 3, you comprehend my path and my lying down. You know what what direction I went through the course of the day. You know everything about the, the path. and you, you knew when I, lie, when I laid down at night, you knew all of that about me and are acquainted with all my ways. There's nothing about me, nothing about the ways of my life that you don't know. All of my habits, all of my plans, all of my aims, all of my desires, all of those things, God says, I know about you. That's an omniscient God, wouldn't you say? Think about it. How many people? Seven billion people on the planet. God knows every one of them, has no trouble keeping up with any one of them. He knows all of those things about them. Can you imagine a God that is that great? I can't. I can't even imagine what a God like that, that, the God that we serve, I can't even imagine what that is like. I can't keep up with two thoughts at the same time. Then don't laugh about that. I walk from one room to the other and can't remember why I went in the room. I'm standing with somebody I've called by name for years and I can't think of their name. I'm taking a test. Now, that's Mary. I'm taking a here, here it comes. I'm taking a test to get into Bible college and I can't remember the name of Jesus' mother. I mean, my mind is so limited and even... The smartest person in this room couldn't keep up with all that God keeps up with. But God is omniscient in all of these things. He goes on in verse 4. He says, for there is not a word on my tongue, whether you've spoken it or whether you've just meditated about saying it. 
There's not even a word on my tongue. It brings uh, new meaning to what Jesus said when he says we'll be judged for every, you know the next phrase, idle. What does he say? Every idle word. Wow, I have spoken a lot of idle words in the the course of my lifetime. I'm sure you all have it, but I have. Every word on my tongue he knows. But behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You know what you were going to say to that person but didn't say? You know what you got to the very place of forming the word but didn't let it you know, escape through your mouth? He knows it. He knows everything there is to know. Verse 5, he says, you have hedged me behind and before. I mean, you're out here ahead of me. You're out here as the foreguard. You're behind me as the rear guard. I mean, you're, you're everywhere around me. This is the omniscience of God. He knows everything. There are no bounds to his presence and to his knowledge. He says, and laid your hand upon me. Wow. You find it interesting that the God of heaven who created everything that there is, put everything as it is. It did not evolve like it is. God who put everything in its place, created everything as it is. Can you imagine that that God even sees who we are, even knows who we are? And yet that's exactly what it says. Your hand is upon me. He says, verse 6, such knowledge Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. And everybody said, amen. Who can know what God knows? Who can understand all that God understands? Who can know what's before us and what's coming behind us? Who can know all the thoughts that we have and even the words that we speak? Who can keep up with all those things? Hey, by the way, he counts the hair on your head. He sees the sparrow that falls. That's your God. That's not supposed to be a creepy factor. Yeah, I don't like God doing that, knowing all those things. Hey, you want God to know everything there is to know about you because he, you're going to find out in a moment, has your best interest at heart. He wants the best for your life. We we move from his omniscience uh, to his omnipresence. He is present everywhere. Verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? And the answer is nowhere. Or where can I flee from your presence? And now he's going to give these polar opposites. They're called mirrorisms, M-E-R-I-S-M-S, mirrorisms, where you give opposites. Because when you give the opposites, it's like saying the alpha and the omega. What do you mean when you say the alpha omega? You're everything there is. Everything between the beginning and the end and everything in between. He's going to give you these mirrorisms. He's going to give you these opposites. He says, if I ascend into heaven, that's up into the sky. Guess who's there? You're there. And if I make my bed in hell, that's the underworld. That's the place of the departed dead in the Old Testament. Behold, you are there. You can't go anywhere. You can go up as far as you can go up, and you can go down as far as you can go down. craziest thing I ever heard was, I think somebody said, if you dug a hole deep enough, you would ultimately end up in China. Are you crazy? If you could do that, God would still be there. There is no hiding from God. He knows all there is to know about you. Everything from your thoughts to every aspect of your life, every single day of your life, you can't escape that. 
And he's there with you every moment. Whether you go to the highest point or the lowest point, God's there. That's comforting. You remember when you were scared as a kid and you had to, I had to go downstairs in our basement one time. It was an unfinished basement. And you had to get down to the bottom of the steps to turn the light on. And we had this huge furnace down there. Just a block room that had a, washer, had a washing machine, no dryer. A washing machine, you hung your clothes out on the clothesline. Had a washing machine down there in this huge, and it had a window on the other side of that big unit. And I hated to go down there because I knew there was somebody on the other side of that unit that was going to grab me. <laughs> and when I got to those steps coming back up, I hit the light and I ran up the steps as fast as I could because I knew somebody was on my, on, on, you know, following behind me. Isn't it comforting when you know God's already there? He's already there. He's been there. He's already there. He's going to stay there. He isn't going to leave there. If you go as high as you can go, he's there. If you can go as low as you can go, he's there. He goes on, verse 6, if I take the wings of the morning, that's the rays of the sunlight, and now he's going to go from high to low. Now he's going to go from east to west. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, if I could ride the the rays of the sun and go as far out in the sea as I could go, go as far east as I can go when the sun's rising, you know who's there? And if I go west as far as I can go west till it's dark on the other side, you know who's there? Are you all with me? Help me out here. You got to talk to me. God's there. That's what he's saying. He goes on, verse 9, If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Hey, that's comfort. That's not creepy. That's comfort. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me. Now we're moving from heaven to Hades or hell to from east to west. Now we move from darkness to light. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, in other words, I can hide in the shadows and nobody will see me, even the night shall be light about me. You know who sees you when it's dark? God, thank you. Thank you. God sees you. When when you're in the daylight and the rays of the sun are shining down on you, God sees you. But when you're in the dark and nobody else can see you, God sees you. You're never out of his vision. He goes on, verse 12, indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. Darkness can't hide anything from God. It shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. Do you see that? They're both alike to you. And you see God's omnipresence. You see God's omniscience in the opening six verses. And then you see God's omnipresence in these following verses from 7 to 12. God knows everything there is to know. God is everywhere there is to go. The only place God isn't is where? Hell. To be in hell is to be separated from God forever, eternally. God is everywhere else. God is in everything else. God is, I don't mean that in a pantheist way. God is all around you. God is watching over you. He's got all of his eyes. His cameras are all watching. Hey, that's supposed to be a comfort factor, not a creepy factor. 
supposed to be a comfort factor. Then you move to his omnipotence. And here's where we're going to stop for a moment. For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Don't you love those phrases, that phrase about your children? They are fearfully and wonderfully made. To be wonderfully made means to be striking or to be remarkable or to be outside the power of human comprehension. Who is fashioning the baby in the mother's womb? It's God. It's God who's doing that work. God is the one who is shaping that little one in in the mother's womb. He goes on, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works and that my soul knows very well. My frame, that's your bones, that's your skeletal structure. My frame was not hidden from you. Can you see my skeletal structure? If you can, I I try to pad it as much as possible so as few people can see it as possible. My frame, he says, was not hidden from you. That's the bones. That's the skeletal structure. When I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. That's a poetic phrase, speaking of the mother's womb. The, the poetic words. Just keep your place here for a minute. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 4. Let me connect a verse of scripture for you. Ephesians chapter 4. Look at verse 9 with me for a moment. Talking about Jesus and his descent from heaven to earth. And listen to how the lower parts of the earth are used. When Jesus descended from heaven, where did he show up? He showed up in a mother's womb, right? What what is it he's saying, David is saying in the Psalms, you wrought me in the lowest parts of the earth. Listen to what it says, verse 9, Ephesians 4. Now this, he ascended. What does it mean but that he he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? What does he mean by the lower parts of the earth? Well, what did David mean when he said the lowest parts of the earth? He meant the womb. Jesus descended from heaven into the mother's womb. And in the mother's womb, God is at work fashioning this child all the way to the skeletal structure, to the DNA, to every aspect of the body of that little one. Verse 16, your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. Isn't it cool how they could take that, I don't know, what, I don't, what do you call it where they scan a mother's, uh, uh, what are they, ultrasound. Yeah, there you go. Isn't, isn't it cool how they scan a mother and that you can see the baby? You know the sex of your child before they're born even? God was able to do that long before ultrasound was ever developed. Do you know that? God was the original ultrasound. He can see it all unfolding. He says, in your book, in God's book, David says, they are all written, those members that are being formed, they're all written. God has already written out what he wants for your life and what he wants from your life, how he's fashioning you when as yet there was none of them. Now I want to stop here for a moment. This is where I want to maybe do a little preaching. I I don't know if you just noticed it, but what he just told you is that the The baby growing in a mother's womb is a life 
that he has given and that he sees and that he is forming and that he is fashioning, that means when you take that life, you're stepping into God's place and taking God's prerogative about that life. Um, I have a young lady that uh, wrote me this past week. She's a sweetheart. She's a good Christian girl. Comes to church every Sunday. And she's growing in the Lord by leaps and bounds. And she's taken a pro-life stance uh, with her friends and amongst her friends. And they are ruthless in attacking her. She wrote me a, a long email just can you help me, Pastor? I, I don't know how to answer all these questions. I don't know what to say in response to what they're telling me. They, they asked me if a third grader was raped and a baby was conceived, would you want that third grader to carry that baby to term and deliver that baby? Pastor, I don't know how to answer a question like that. So I sat down and I, I answered her. And I told her, I didn't want to have all this here, because it was too long to put all here. Uh, but I, I told her, I said, please overlook my oratorical, uh, you, know, you know, the way I'm, I'm speaking. I'm not, I'm not upset with you. I just want you to understand where these people are coming from. It's God who says he's the one making life in the mother's womb. It's God who sees it. It's the God who fashions it. That, that child in the mother's womb is a child. It's not a blob of tissue. And I wrote her back because she didn't know what to do and how to respond to somebody about a third grade girl. I said, first, I'm not even sure an eight or nine-year-old girl in the third grade could become pregnant. At least it wouldn't be something that is common or frequent. Assuming a little girl of this age can become pregnant, pro-choice advocates always point out the most extreme cases. The overwhelming number of abortions aren't extraordinary circumstances to try and justify their position would your friends consent to stop and stand against all other abortions if you granted that abortion should be allowed in an exceptional case like a third grade girl becoming pregnant by rape no they would not no matter how you answer them they're going to give they're going to give they're not going to give any ground uh, uh, they're not going to give any ground to having unfettered access to abortion at any point of any pregnancy. They aren't looking for a reasonable position to take, nor do they care that basic biology says that life begins at conception. This is an issue of science as well as the Bible. All they want you and me to feel is the awkwardness of a very, very rare exception, like a third grade girl being raped and becoming pregnant. They do this to try to trap, try and trap you into agreeing with them and make you feel bad about not agreeing with them. Aren't they concerned with the many women that have, that have abortions as little more than birth control so they can continue to act immorally? Again, uh, they might say they wish it weren't so, but they won't stand against it, and thus it continues every day in America. Once a new life has begun, I wrote to her, in a mother's womb, she would, should the newly created child in that womb have to pay the price for the evil of a wicked man that might do, that might do this to a little girl? Shouldn't we also be extremely concerned that an abortion for an eight or nine-year-old might scar the little girl as much as, or more than having the baby? 
Why aren't these friends that are challenging you as concerned about what happens to the rapist who is the child molester? Are the, and I, by the way, I'm, I'm preaching in this. this. This is not how it, you know, I wrote it in a letter. Are you all with me? Are they interested that the abuser of the little girl is punished to the fullest extent of the law? This aspect is likely nothing more than an afterthought thought to them because their primary concern is, the, is protecting all abortions. All they're doing is trying to justify access to abortion throughout the course of an entire pregnancy. Some states do allow for exceptions in the case of rape or the danger to the physical life of the mother. Abortionists aren't even satisfied with those exceptions created in the, lows of the, in the laws of those states. All they, all they will accept is the freedom to take the life of a baby from conception until birth, and some want to extend, it, extend the right abortion even to newborns. And then I finished. I said, God is very clear that life begins at conception. Jeremiah 1, 5, Psalm 139, 13 to 16, Luke 1, 39 to 41. These passages demonstrate that God is at work in a mother's womb, fashioning the child for his purposes. Every child conceived is valuable to God and a gift from God. I hate when a woman or a child is abused or raped. It is pure evil. But the newly conceived child is completely innocent. I pray that the man that does such a deed is punished to the fullest extent of the law, but I don't want to punish the child growing in the mother's womb, and I want to give, that, I want to give the, the mother of the child as much love and care as is humanly possible. And then I finish by saying, we have members of our church that were conceived in rape, and I cannot imagine what this world or our church would be like had those mothers decided to abort them. They are shining examples of people who overcame a difficult beginning to, take, to become testimonies of the grace of God. And then I told her, you probably won't convince your friends that your point is valid, but I hope you'll stand firm on your pro-life position. The life of the future generation depends on it. You say, why'd you read that to me? Because it's the best way for me to say it. I've already written out my thoughts. Say, why are you so insistent about abortion that is wrong? Because Psalm 139, verses 13 to 16 says, God is the one who's creating that life and making that life, and nobody has a, has a right to intervene in God's work. See, I went to preach in there. God is the one who formed him in his omnipotence. And we think about omnipotence and we think about, you know, the, the planets and the, we think about the stars and we think about the universe and then we think about the galaxies and, and we think about, you know, all these things that are way out there that we can't even comprehend. I mean, they're talking about going back to the moon. Can you imagine going back to the moon? Because they want to build a base so that they can ultimately go to Mars. Because somewhere on Mars, there's got to be Mars men. There's got to be Mar Martians. I know they had a program when I was growing up. They had Martians on the program. They had antennas that came up in the back of his head. I'm not against exploration. I think that's a good thing to do. But how stupid and how foolish we are. God's creation is great. His omnipotence is not only seen in the greatness of that creation, it's seen in the greatness of the creation of a child in a mother's womb. And I want to tell you something. If our churches stop saying this, this generation is doomed. If our churches stop preaching the truth, 
this generation is doomed. We already have Christian kids who think it's okay to abort a child. It's okay to abort a child. Christian kids. And the church goes silent because we don't want to make anybody mad. Well, I got news for you. People are already mad at me about other things, so we might as well add this to it. It's the way it is. God is the one who in his omnipotence, his omnipotence is fashioning that child in the mother's womb. Now listen to what he goes on to say, verse 17. I mean, this little one that God is shaping, this one, the psalmist, whom God is watching over, God is superintending his life. He's there before he's there. He's there after he's gone. He knows every thought that he has. He knows every word that he speaks and every word that he could speak. Listen to what he says. How precious, verse 17, how precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. Aren't you glad that God's thoughts toward you are precious? I love that word, precious. I don't use it much as a man, but it's a, it's a word that's valuable. You remember Psalm 72, verse 14, it says, for their lives are precious to me. Or Isaiah 43, verse 4, it says, you are precious to me. Or Psalm 116, verse 15, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Something of great value something of extreme worth. How precious are your thoughts to me, O God. When God thinks about you, can I just tell you, God has great thoughts for you. Amen? He has great thoughts for you. How great is the sum of them? I mean, you just start adding them up, start adding adding them up. I've got to quit shortening words. Start adding them up and adding them up and adding them up. And you know what? You ever had one of those calculators where you're trying to multiply and you're trying to add and you ran out of digits across the, you ran out of digits across the, the screen? That's God's thoughts. I mean, you, you just run out of digits on our screen. His precious thoughts toward us. To be, you, you just keep multiplying until finally, there's, you know, on your screen, there's no more room for any more digits. But God's thoughts just keep going on that way. His thoughts toward us are precious thoughts. The sum of them is great. Verse 18 says, if I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. Have y'all been to the beach? Have y'all ever tried to count the grains of sand? I hate sand. It gets in my bathing suit. It gets in my shoes. I hate sand. I love the beach. I just hate sand. My grandkids get down and dig in it. Come on, granddad, get down here and dig in the sand. Nothing doing. I'm not getting down there in the sand. Don't want to be in the sand. I want to look at it. I want to smell it. I want to see it. You can play in it. I don't want to be in it. You can't count the grains of sand. God says, David says that God's precious thoughts toward us, the sum is so great, it's like the sand on a seashore. You can't even count the number of them. And then he says, when I awake, I am still with you. Even at the moment of his birth, he's talking about his birth. Even at the moment of his birth, when you come out of the womb and you get that first breath of air and you're screaming, 
Even at that moment of his birth, God is still his sustainer and his protector and his guide. That's what he's talking about. When I awake from the womb of my mother, I am still with you. God is still with us, and he'll be with us just like he was with the psalmist. He's omnipresent. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. That's the God that we serve. Now, the psalm takes a turn in verse 19, and I don't think we'll get to to the fullness of this, so we'll have to bump Psalm 103 to a little bit later because I'll finish this next week. But the entire psalm takes a turn. Do do you see that this is not a creepy factor. This is a comfort factor. God sees you. God knows everything there is to know about you. God's, he's there before you get there. He's there after you're gone. He's as high as you can go. He's far down as you can go. He's as far east and west as you can go. I mean, you can't get away from God in the light he sees you, in the dark he sees you, even in your mother's womb. He sees you and he fashions you and he molds you and he makes you. You say, why do I have uh, blonde hair? Because God made you that way. Why don't I have hair? Well, that's another story. And why does my hair turn gray? I don't know all the answers to all those things, and I'm sure scientists probably can tell you some of those things, why things happen the way they happen, but I can tell you ultimately who's in control of it all. God's in control of it all. But then he turns in verse 19, and a lot of people say they must have added the next four verses because surely, surely, in this beautiful song about the omniscience and omnipotence and uh, omnipresence of God, surely this, this doesn't fit here, but it absolutely fits. Verse 19, oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. That's the word L, L, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men, for they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Now, I'm going to come back to this next week. But let me just tell you what he's doing here. He's just gone through the omniscience and the omnipotence and the omnipresence of God that even to your mother's womb, God sees you and fashions you and forms you into who he wants you to be. And David's thinking about the precious thoughts of God, the sum of which you can't even count, these precious thoughts about your life to God that you can't even count. And then David says, I want you to know, God, I'm going to be loyal to you. That's what verses 19, 20, and 21, 22 are about. He says, God, after you've done all of this and because of who you are and because of all of these things that I know about you, you think I'm going to turn my back on you? No, 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 no. Lord, it's the enemies. Lord, it's the enemies. I hate the enemy that hates you. My loyalty is to you. You're the one with the precious thoughts that are toward me that are more than the grains of the sand of the sea. Lord, I'll never turn my back on you. It's the enemies of you. And I want to tell you that We talk an awful lot about love, but we don't talk much about hatred anymore. But there are still things to hate. And if you don't hate them, you don't really love as much as you say you love. Do you believe that? I'll show you next week. We'll talk about it next week. 